I'm Sarah Hooper. And I'm Arika Smith. You're listening to Contraindicated, a podcast dedicated to rethinking the systems that perpetuate health injustice. This program has been made possible by the UCSF UC Hastings Consortium on Law, Science, and Health Policy. On this episode of Contraindicated, we discuss the role of trauma and political conditions in shaping the health and legal needs of asylum seekers in the U.S. Christine Lin, an attorney, is the Director of Training and Assistance at the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at UC Hastings Law. Will Martinez is Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF. He's also Director of the Child and Adolescent Services Clinic at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. Christine and Will collaborate to train healthcare professionals to conduct evaluations and provide documentation for asylum claims. Will and Christine, thanks for joining us today on Contraindicated. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. You both work with asylum seekers, and we thought it would be really helpful to start the discussion with a story, an example of how the social determinants of health affects asylum seekers. Yeah, thank you. So we're going to tell you a story about a typical family from Honduras that we engage with in our work. This is a, a kind of an amalgamation of a few different stories, but very typical of the folks that we see in our work. So this is a family from Honduras, as I mentioned. They're from an Afro-Indigenous community background called the Garifuna, which is a group that's also persecuted within Honduras. In 2013, the family father figure uh, fled for reasons unknown, although there's high suspicion that trauma was a large precipitating factor of why they left. There's also a mother and two children um, who are part of this family. Um, the children are 16-year-old, 16-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy. In 2018, the mother and the two children decided to reunite with the father here in the United States. And this occurred as a decision that the family made following violent threats that they received from gang members against the family. These threats came because the 16-year-old daughter, there was an attempted kidnapping of her by gang members in the neighborhood where they live in for use in, in trafficking. And the brother was also targeted by the gang as well um, due to his age and, and, and proximity there. The family did not feel that they could go to the police for protection. They felt threatened by these gang members um, and decided to come to the United States to seek safety. Um, when they arrived at the U.S.-Mexico border, they underwent what are called credible fear interviews by Customs and Border Patrol. And these interviews are used to understand why people are fleeing their countries and, and trying to seek asylum here in the United States. The stories that these family members told were somewhat inconsistent. Um, we have a 16-year-old daughter, again, told different details than the 14-year-old boy who told different details than their mother. The children and family now applied for asylum as a family unit. Their father is also submitting a separate claim for asylum, but they're not currently going through removal proceedings in the same way that the mom and the children are, which is causing stress to the family unit. Additionally, you know, as I mentioned, this dad 
left Honduras in 2013. Uh, so the boy at the time was around six years old and the daughter was around uh, eight years old. So in that interim time, they've, you know, have had sporadic contact with their father. Um, and now the father is attempting to uh, uh, have that role as, as a father and a parental figure and is causing conflicts in the family with the children. And as you can imagine, there's enormous trauma and stress throughout uh, the mother, the children, the father's unknown trauma, and there's a significant trauma that happened during their journeys here to the States that they're all trying to process as a family. And that is kind of the setting and the context that now uh, Christine and I come into this work. Well, we end up meeting with the family members separately to kind of discuss their asylum claims. So the the mom and the two kids are placed into removal proceedings in front of an immigration judge and are proceeding with their asylum claim before an immigration judge. And so they come to see us, a legal service provider, for representation. And then we find out that the dad separately has been here for a while and are also exploring what avenues for protection he also has in the United States. During this time, we realize that all of the family members, as Will mentioned, have endured some sort of trauma and that we really need to work with health professionals to be able to work on each of their individual asylum cases, as well as to make sure that they have the treatment they need to be able to go through the asylum process. And that's really helpful. Can you both talk a little bit more about why this is a health equity issue? Um, so how, you know, we understand, Christine, how this family would come to you as a lawyer. And thank you for teeing up, you know, this issue of healthcare is important to their testimony. But Will, can you talk a little bit about how you think of asylee health in terms of health disparities and that broader framing and and how you as a physician encounter folks like these? Yeah. And, and want to clarify, I'm a clinical psychologist, not a physician, but I can discuss the healthcare disparities in terms of access to, especially access to behavioral health services. So generally immigrants, you know, all types of immigrants are one of the populations that experience the most disparities in terms of access to uh, mental health care. More specifically, asylees are experiencing higher levels of these disparities. And what this means is that they're, you know, at the numbers that we expect in this population, and this is a population that's at high risk for mental health concerns due to the amount of trauma they're experiencing in their home countries, the traumatic experience that many go through in their journeys to the United States, and then, you know, experiences that they have here in the United States. Um, it could be more traumas if they're living in neighborhoods with high levels of community violence. It's also stress from anti-immigrant policy and climate that many folks are in, including here, you know, in, in an area of the United States that is a sanctuary city in San Francisco, right? That's it's more welcoming to immigrants. Even then here, we still see enough anti-immigrant climate and policies that seriously stress these populations. And a lot of this is at the federal level too. So what this happens then is folks are scared to access services. They're not accessing services at the level that you would expect due to the these systemic issues. There are many folks 
that maybe are uh, would be willing to access services, but just don't understand. You know, there's there's what there, uh, we call a lack of literacy around mental health services, especially for people coming from rural areas and countries with poor mental health infrastructure. They don't really know what it is that uh, you know someone like me, a psychologist does. They don't know what a social worker does or what counseling or therapy is, and let alone know how to access it now in a new country, in a new city they, they haven't lived in for very long. So that's the majority of asylees. Then there are many that access services. And, and when they access these services, they tend to be of poor quality. They don't tend to be of what we call evidence-based, you know, and, and supported by research. They are not as evaluated correctly because folks maybe don't understand, you know, cultural presentations of mental illness and how, you know, to diagnose someone like that and how to provide treatment. And all of these things. So when pe- many people who are not accessing these quality services and drop out. So we have three problems, you know, access, quality of service, and then engagement that we have high dropout among this population when they're engaging in services. That's super helpful. So so the kind of political conditions, um, violence, lack of infrastructure, all of these social conditions are driving people to seek asylee status and are also creating mental health conditions and trauma that are not adequately met when they are here. And that informs how they are viewed by our system here in the United States. Um, So Christine, do you want to talk a little bit about the role of law in shaping asylee health? So you sort of teed up this idea that trauma and the mental health status of people coming in can affect your advocacy with and for them. Can you say a little bit more about that? And also, you know, is there a particular law or policy more broadly that you could share to illustrate how law shapes these conditions? Sure. So maybe we need to take a step back and just kind of explain what an asylum seeker is and what it means to obtain asylum in the United States. So somebody who's left their home country and are seeking asylum in the United States are fleeing either persecution because of, and this is going to be more legal, but one of the five protected grounds for asylum, they're fleeing because of their race, nationality, religion, political opinion, or what we call membership in a particular social group, which could include women who are fleeing domestic violence, people in the LGBTQ community, and others. And so by definition, most asylum seekers either have experienced trauma in the past, or they have a fear of trauma. And that could be a psychological trauma. So they're experiencing that fear can translate into psychological trauma. So when working with asylum seekers in the as a legal service provider, as an attorney, um, we need to be very careful when we're asking them about the harm that they've experienced in the past and what they fear in the future. And I will be really honest, most of us attorneys representing asylum seekers are not trained to discuss trauma. We haven't taken a class in that in law school. We haven't had the -the on-the-job training. I think there is more recognition that that is very important, and trauma-informed representation of asylum seekers is a unique skill. But in the meantime, what we've tried to do is work with professionals such as Will and 
others who have the training to work with people who have experienced a lot of trauma. And sometimes we need to work in tandem with health health providers to be able to get the asylum seeker to share their, their story and be able to continue on with the legal representation. So for an asylum case, we usually have to put together a declaration from the person and they usually have to provide testimony either in court or before an asylum officer. And this can be very difficult for somebody to, you know, explain some of the most egregious things that have happened to them in the past. We need to explain in detail the type of harm that they've suffered, why, who did it to them. It can be very re-traumatizing to the person to explain these details. And the reason we need to do this and prepare the case this way is one, to prove that they qualify as an asylum seeker under a very particular definition in immigration law. But U.S. law also requires that a person be able to testify credibly. And the credibility analysis in immigration cases, I think, very difficult when you're faced with somebody who has experienced trauma and may not remember dates well, may have blurred timelines of when things have happened and details get mixed up, especially if they've had a lot of trauma in the past. Um, And so they might come across to an adjudicator or the Department of Homeland Security, who is the opposing counsel in immigration court cases, as not credible. And that can really be very difficult. So oftentimes I'm needing to work with a health provider to explain why my client is not able to tell a linear descriptive story. The adjudicator also observes the demeanor of the person. So if somebody isn't emotional enough or is too emotional in some ways, sometimes that could be a factor in the credibility determination. So I think that's one piece that is kind of difficult, and especially when working with trauma trauma survivors, where the law sometimes is stacked against them because it is an American standard of what is credible and the expectation that if somebody is traumatized, they are going to be crying, you know, or they're going to be able to remember these types of details. I think the other part is that we, and Will touched upon this too in the care that people receive, is that there isn't always accessible care in the person's language, especially for mental health services or culturally competent care. So even if a lot of the clients like the family from Honduras speak Spanish, but even if there is a Spanish speaking mental health provider, they may not be aware of the specifics of a Garifuna family from Honduras because the person may be be bilingual but grew up in the United States in a Mexican family. So that might be something to think about. One other issue that comes a lot in asylum cases is the one-year filing deadline. So to qualify for asylum, someone needs to be able to an individual needs to file for asylum within one year of their last arrival in the United States. For many people who come here, they don't want to talk about their trauma. So they may not, or they might not even have access to the services to get legal representation, to be able to know about asylum and to apply. And oftentimes what we find is that the person's repressed 
what's happened to them in the past, want to start life over here in the United States, find a job, but kind of have suppressed the trauma. And then when they're finally ready to start thinking about legalizing their status and applying in the United States, we need to work with a mental health provider or a medical provider to explain the health reasons why they may not have been able to apply for asylum. I'm not saying that that's Every person who doesn't apply for asylum has a health-related ground, but in many of the cases, we find that that's the case. I have a couple of follow-up questions um, for you. One relates to how unusual are medical legal collaborations like the one that you, Christine, and Will have is it is it really like you've sort of won the lottery if you end up in a circumstance where this there's this type of support or is it pretty common that these partnerships exist so if you have legal support you're going to have the mental health support as well so i wouldn't say that they are super common and to be honest a lot of them are informal even the collaboration that will and i have in the various networks we're a part of, um, which include the Bay Area Health and Legal Initiative for Immigrant Families and the Health and Human Rights Initiative at UCSF. Um, you know, for for a, a long time, these have been informal par- partnerships that we're referring cases to UCSF's clinic for forensic evaluations or for the Bay Area Health and Legal Initiatives for Immigrant Families, which we call BALI. It's just a group of legal service providers and health providers who've decided that this is very important to have this kind of collaboration. And so we've taken it upon ourselves to meet on a monthly basis to you know, figure out ways that we need to, to collaborate. So I wouldn't say that it's formalized all over the place. There are various I think what's more formalized is legal service organizations, health organizations. There is the Physicians for Human Rights that does coordinate some of the evaluations, but it, I wouldn't say it's automatic. People need to, the legal service providers need to know about the services of the health providers, but it's not like every client is matched up to a case. On the legal side, we need to seek out who will be able to evaluate our client or provide services. And sometimes that's difficult because there are requirements by the city or the state or the county as to you know what kind of person qualifies for services. And then the health provider needs to see if they have capacity. And I would say capacity is a huge issue in these cases. I don't know what the percentage is of asylum seekers that get services but it's certainly not 100% and it's not in all cases. And I do think that health and legal collaboration in all asylum cases would be very critical, especially since we're talking about working with a population who has undergone trauma in the various ways that Will discussed earlier. Yeah, and I just wanted to add too that I do think to some extent, medical legal partnerships are common for for many of the reasons Christine stated. But what makes our partnership unique is that, you know, one thing we all discussed was this this kind of individualized approach to working with an attorney on an asylum evaluation per se is just not not efficient. You know, um, 
there's not enough providers, there's not enough legal providers, there's not enough healthcare providers right now and the way our system is set up. Um, but what these partnerships allow us to do is to think about like what are more uh, uh, policy level, higher order level kind of things that we can work together on. Um, and, and one example of that is these universal declarations that we've worked on that folks can use in multiple um, immigration cases. Another thing is how do we uh, decrease burnout, you know, um, both on the uh, on for legal providers, but for healthcare providers. Um, and, and part of this with the relationship is, you know, having this more trauma informed approach, you know, it's not just about when we're serving our clients, whether it's, you know, through through legal services or healthcare, but it's also serving each other, right? Um, you know, providing this care uh, to attorneys on how to take this trauma-informed approach, how to prevent burnout with themselves are things that we've been talking about um, and these medical partnerships can be helpful with. The second piece of this for healthcare providers too is understanding this legal landscape. It is incredibly complex, especially now. Things are ever-changing. These policies impact our families. They impact if they're gonna seek care. You know, the, like the public charge rule was huge in, in impacting. We're still seeing the ramifications of that to this day. And we really need to understand, you know, from, from a legal perspective, what this means for our families. Um, uh, let alone that it's great to have these partnerships because many of us on the healthcare side, we're seeing these families are like, hey, I need help with my asylum claim. And then we talk to them and, and find out they don't have legal representation and we you know need to connect them to somebody and what we know is folks with legal representation are you know much much higher chance of having successful asylum claims than someone who's not represented so thank you for teeing up these sort of workforce issues and and the the things that would make it helpful for asylum seekers uh, and having medical and legal professionals working together is certainly really uh, key and addressing some of those workforce issues around burnout, access to services sounds really important. But, you know, how how should we also think about, you know, you mentioned the public charge rule. Um, there are these bigger systems at play, these bigger policies. Can you say a little bit more about what public charge is for folks who who haven't heard of it and how that shapes the conditions in which you both are working? So public charge is a policy that does dissuade people from accessing services such as healthcare, mental health services, um, even obtaining services for getting food assistance. And it's really unfortunate because then we see the adverse health factors impacting asylum seekers and other immigrants in the United States. Another policy that really has impacted asylum seekers is what we call Title 42 expulsions at the U.S. border. And that stems from a Center for Disease Control in light of COVID-19 seeking to shut down U.S. borders to protect public health. Unfortunately, the problem with Title 42 is that it screens out people based on their status in the United States or a lack thereof, and not really screening people because of whether or not they have COVID-19 or not. And so that's an effectively expelled 
thousands of asylum seekers fleeing their home countries and being returned either to Mexico or to their very dangerous conditions in their home country. And I do want to emphasize that there is a right to seek asylum at the U.S. borders. It's not illegal to do so. In fact, U.S. immigration law does allow for people to come to the border without a visa and say, I'm afraid to return to my home country. I want to seek asylum here in the United States. But with Title 42, they are not able to do so and be let in because we've just seen so many thousands of people, including families and very young children, being expelled under this policy, which has been invoked in light of protecting the public health of the United States. And I'm sure Will has more to say on Title 42. Yeah, and I, you know what we know, there's, there's a number of studies that have come out over the last few years about the impact of these anti-immigrant policies just generally on, on the mental health of immigrants and, and how much stress it causes. And what we consistently find is even for folks where the policy doesn't have much of an effect, it still causes stress levels to go up. You know, some of the thoughts around that is because they're in what are called mixed status families, you know, and that there are folks in that family who might be applying for asylum um, while there's people who are born in the U.S. within that family, right? Or they may have friends or neighbors or other people that they know. So there, it causes this worry and anxiety of for in these communities, right? Um, and that worry, that anxiety, that stress then translates into mental health concerns. And there are a number of, of studies that were, you know, that have come out over the past few years that really have demonstrated that, uh, that there are these kind of like larger community impacts um, on people's mental health, especially immigrant communities of anti-immigrant policy, regardless of the immigration or the uh, legal immigration status of these immigrant communities. Um, and as you can imagine, you know, so there's these policies impact mental health, right? They, they increase the risk for someone having uh, a mental health concern that they now potentially need help with. Um, but it's also causing then this additive effect of, okay, so it's increasing your risk for, for mental health problems, but it's also increasing the chance that you're not going to seek services um, because you're afraid of, you know, whatever these policies mean um, for yourself or another family member if you partake in them. And this is not even touching upon the whole issue with stigma generally. Uh, around mental health and mental health access. So compounding all these things, you know, it, it's no surprise that we are seeing this as a, there's already a mental health crisis period right now, right? Um, just all over the world with the pandemic and everything we've gone through, but compound all that with immigrants, um, uh, anti-immigrant policy, uh, uh, lack of of knowledge about access to services, um, trauma, stress, anxiety, you name it. Um, we, we have a real issue on our hands and, and a population that's incredibly uh, in need of help and vulnerable who, who's not accessing services anywhere near the level that they should. And I think that's that's such an important point because we know that mental health and stress is an important mechanism by which we become physically unhealthy, right? And so those stressors 
both acute and long-term, are increasing our risk for both communicable and non-communicable disease. So, I mean, it's interesting. So from a healthcare standpoint and also to, to Christine's point, this policy, although framed in public health terms, is not actually addressing a public health need because it's based on status and not COVID status. And it may actually be worsening public health. Is that the right way to think about this? I mean, it's certainly worsening the public health of migrants in the United States. But I do think that Title 42 has actually been the opposite of protecting public health because public health in the United States also means the families of people who've been expelled at the border, right? Because there's so many people in the United States, as we mentioned, who are in mixed status families who have legal status in the United States, who are American citizens. Some of them have family members who have been trying to get in, but then expelled under Title 42 because they want to reunify with their family members and are also separately seeking asylum in the United States, but they are not going to be able to get in because of Title 42. And then the stress of one, being expelled to a place where it's very dangerous, where you've already suffered trauma, and then the mental health of the family members here in the United States and the concern for their family members who have been returned to places that are very dangerous is also, I think, a a huge problem. And then for all of us advocates working, it's just very, uh, like this has been a very stressful time. I think we all thought that with the new change in administration, things would get better from a mental health perspective for the legal advocates, but it's just, it hasn't. And it's very disconcerting that some of the same exclusive anti-immigrant policies continue under this administration. Yeah, and I'll add to that, that there's, you know, there's also a worry that A, there's these policies are continuing, but there's a certain level of complacency in the population as well with with what's happening. And, and, you know, we often see this when there's there's a change in administration to one, you know, that are more friendly towards immigrants that then kind of the activism, the advocacy that happens at, in the general population goes down. Um, and with that funding as well for these causes, because if we have an administration that is uh, uh, historically associated with more friendly immigration policies, people expect that to just happen. But the reality is that there hasn't been many administrations that have been friendly towards immigrants, especially not in any type of way in recent history, whatever side of the political spectrum they're on. And as Christine mentioned, not much has really changed. Um, There's been a lot of talk, but not much in terms of our policies towards immigrants have changed um, uh, since the Biden administration took office. So we really need to be careful about complacency in the general population with, with what's happening. Um, with advocates for for immigrants. And we have to continue to advocate to that for these populations because things haven't gotten better and in some ways have gotten worse because time, not making a change in time is is creating these situations where people's lives are in danger now. So 
going back to their home countries or having to remain in a third country waiting or, you know, even on the Mexico side, uh, the conditions there that folks are going through um, and, and living through our public health disaster, to be frank, that we just passed off to our neighbor. And I would agree with Will about complacency. I think the one thing during the last administration that was a silver lining was just seeing the public react to the Muslim ban. And, you know, pe- other attorneys that were not immigration lawyers wanting to fight the administration and its anti-immigrant policies. But I think for those of us who have been immigration advocates for many years, none of these issues are new. These problems were exacerbated under the last administration, but they've always been here. And asylum seekers and immigrants have always needed protection. And there's always been a a gap in health services and accessibility um, to mental health and other health services for them. And I am seeing that there's just less excitement to be continuing involved in these issues from others who are not in the immigration field. So I think that's a great place to start to close us out. What can you recommend to individuals listening to do to try to address some of these issues? What can people do in their individual capacities or even their professional capacities if they're listening? Yeah, don't be complacent. You know, keep bringing these issues up uh, to your, you know, uh, legislators. Bring this up to your city officials in San Francisco, your supervisors. Like, bring this up to to folks to keep it in in the limelight and make sure that you hold government officials responsible for ensuring that immigrants and asylees' safety is upheld and that we are you know, beholden to international laws protecting, especially protecting our immigrant children. So you can support organizations, uh, whether that's volunteering time, monetary support to organizations like ours, you know, uh, whether it's UCSF Health and Human Rights Initiative, which is, whether it's the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at UC Hastings, whether it's the Bay Area Health and Legal Partners for Immigrant Children. Um, there's organizations all over the Bay Area, the state of California, the country, doing this good, hard work that need a lot of support. And then also showing up to protests. There are rallies still for immigrant families. Um, we had a rally last last week in front of City Hall to raise awareness of the anti, the Title 42 expulsions against Black immigrants. So more presence at those types of events could be very helpful to just shine light on the public's keeping an eye on what the government is doing too. And then in professional capacities, if you are an attorney, you know, consider taking on a pro bono asylum case or being involved in some sort of immigration case. My organization, the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies does provide mentorship support to equip pro bono attorneys with the tools to be able to take on asylum cases. And then if you're a health professional, consider doing a forensic health evaluation. We also do trainings and collaborate with UCSF and other medical institutions to put on trainings for conducting forensic evaluations. We will be sharing the resources 
that you have both mentioned on our website. And we want to thank you both for your time and everything you've shared. For resources and info related to this episode and to listen to other episodes, please visit uchastings.edu forward slash health and justice.